to welcome you back tonight. Thank you for being here and hopefully learning some more stories of bold faith. That's what we're talking about on Sunday nights. We are endeavoring to think about faith and our own story and think about faith from the perspective of the stories we interact with through our daily Bible reading. And so it's my hope that this Sunday night series, you two is to attend, that it will be, uh, draw some light uh, onto these stories of which we're pondering together as we go through the scripture. Now, we're moving at a pretty good clip, two to three chapters a day, at least on the 90-day plan. So that means that, um, you know, I've got a pretty deep well to draw from. And I've determined not to overwhelm you with, you know, trying to cover lots of of those stories. I'm just going to cover one. And so we'll go through these together and hopefully as as we go through them, you'll have remembered reading those stories. And then you'll be able to think together as we talk about faith. Our theme verse is Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23. And the ESV of that... Version of that verse says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope which we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And as we think about faith, I guess for me, That's where it gets personal, where I want, hopefully, to encourage you to not give up, to keep holding on, and to hold true to the Lord who brought you to where you are. This series is about our journey with God. Uh, That journey has two parts, He being faithful, and we uh, who have to choose whether or not we're going to hold on or not. I've included on your handout this quote from George Mueller, which I just thought was excellent, speaking to tonight's story. He says, God delights to increase the faith of his children. I say and say it deliberately, trials, difficulties, and sometimes defeat are the very food of faith. We should take them out of his hands as evidences of his love and care for us in developing more and more faith, more and more that faith which he is seeking to strengthen in us. I love that perspective. Sounds so much like James. Consider it then pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials and temptations of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith is helping to mature you, helping to grow you, helping to make you stronger. And that's not what we hear a, a lot of in modern, uh, postmodern, Western Christianity. It has more to do with making you the center of the universe and making you feel good and, and seeking to, to uh, encourage you with this idea that if you are doing right, then God will bless you and it will just keep getting better and better and better and your problems will get fewer and fewer and fewer. And I don't 
believe for a minute that that is gospel. Jesus clearly said, in this world you will have trouble. His point was not to release us from trouble. His point was to give us an anchor and an answer for those times in which we have trouble. So I told you this morning I would tell you my story, and this is one for me. Uh, when I came to this really uh, difficult trusting moment, it was uh, October 2010. In fact, I can tell you precisely the date, uh, October the 12th. And I remember that day in particular because I had been up the night before. And about 11.30 on October 11th, Christy said, uh, being pregnant with our youngest daughter, Grace, time to go to the hospital. So we did. Now, if you don't have children, or if you only have one child, you know, the second child is very misleading in a lot of ways. One, you think, well, I've, I've done it now. I, I've, you know, I've, I've figured out what this is all about, and I can get very comfortable. I know exactly what to expect. I've set all the rules down for the firstborn. I've set the standards down. I know exactly how he or she will respond in those situations. And everyone with two or more children is silently or maybe out loud giggling. So this was the first of my introductions to that. But that night, Grace hadn't arrived on the scene yet. But first parent mindset was, much more calm, much more relaxed. I knew exactly what was coming. I, I knew how to handle it. So we get the stuff. We call Grandma and Grandpa to watch Tyler. Uh, we, we all head to the hospital. We head there, and when Tyler was born, it was very quick. So I'm thinking, gosh, this is going to be, you know, she's going to be born very, very soon, two or three in the morning. We'll be done. And that wasn't the case. And she she delayed and and delayed, and it just took a long time. And I, I hate to say how much time, because there are those of you who went through longer labor, and you say, that's nothing. But it was much longer, okay? About eight hours longer. And there was this point, as we're waiting, that more and more doctors are coming into the room, in and out. It's overnight, so it's a lot of interns and things like that. And I'm figuring out that we shouldn't be delayed as long as we should, as long as we have been. And, you know, they're trying to figure out exactly what's causing the problem and, and what they need to do and the correct diagnosis and all of that. And I remember very clearly they were putting monitors to uh, be able to monitor Grace's heartbeat from within the womb. And the friendly little nurse, you know, she's hooking it all up and explaining to me how this all works. Didn't have to do this with Tyler. So she, she says, oh, it's just fine, Mr. Levering. You see, you see this monitor up here? So all we're doing is watching her heartbeat. And as long as it doesn't go below right here, and I mean, just almost as soon as she said right here, her heart line went. And, you know, her, her perky little smile went away. And she got very quiet and very focused. And uh, the whole room filled with three, four, five doctors, all, all of them each having a job. And now this is the picture. I'm, 
I'm in this, what I think is normal. I'm ready for a normal delivery. And all of a sudden, I'm almost literally just pushed to the back corner of the room. And I'm, I can't illustrate this well because I'm not in a room. But I'm kind of over here. And I'm, I'm just kind of in the back. I'm, I mean, I'm almost just in the corner as far as that. And I don't, I'm not, I don't want to abandon Christy, but her whole bed is surrounded by, by people smarter than I am. I can't help in this situation. I'm just back here. But it gets real intense. And it's at this moment, from this corner, in this hospital room, that I go through what Jacob started going through, the wrestling with God. Because in this moment, like, only those of you who are type A control planning types can identify with, we hate this spot. But you understand there was nothing I could offer. There was nothing I could do. And so I'm just, I'm just praying. I was like, God, you know, why, why did we go through all this? Is this going to end badly? What's going to happen? What's going to be the result? Are you going to take care of us? I thought you would always be with us. I, you know, you, you led us this here. We've had a, a great pregnancy up to this point. We, we haven't really had any signals that anything like this was coming. What happened? Where, where are you? Peace that passes all understanding. Why don't I have that? I'm just, I'm just going through all sorts of this kind of stuff with God. I don't have anybody else to talk to, really. So they make the determination that they're going to deliver grace by cesarean. They're going to do surgery. And that was certainly not expected. We weren't planning for that. And so they, you know, all the surgeons come in. And, and her doctor, uh, Dr. Douthat, uh, was, was not there. He was not. You know, there yet, it was the middle of the night, it was early morning, and uh, they say, we're going to wheel her back, we're going to do the surgery. Things are not looking good at all. And, and everything that I believed up to this point was just, man, it seems so shattered. And they say, okay, you know, would you like to go back there? Yes, I'd like to go back. Okay, put on the scrubs and go right here and, and wait by these double doors, and when we're ready, we'll come get you. And so, yeah, I put on the scrubs, the mask on, the hairnet, and the gloves, and just everything. And I'm just, I'm just a wreck. I'm just beside myself, and I'm just pacing back and forth, just doing this number. And I, <laughs> I hope no one saw me, because I'm sure they thought it was a, a surgeon who had just lost it. I mean, I was just talking to myself, and I'm muttering, and I'm, I'm, I'm just back and forth. And, and so I pull out my phone, and I... I text Christie's prayer group. This is probably 7 in the morning or something like that. Hey, you know, don't know if you're up. Please, please pray. Don't know what's going on here, but things have changed. The plans are different. And we just back and forth, back and forth. And I just, like, I just had to come to this, come to this point where I stopped pacing. And just what we talked about this morning. I just had to walk myself through it. You know, he got the whole world in his hand. He got the whole world in his hand. And he's got you. And he's got her. And he's got the baby. And so, just, okay, 
I don't know how it's going to work, but God, I trust you. And I said, I trust you. And help me with the parts of me that don't. Hard story even to go back to, to remember that night, to remember that he who promised is faithful. Have you been here? I don't know if you have. Some, some of you I know have. Very public. We've been praying for you a long time. Um, and you've been here where this parent is tonight. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. This moment where we get a brutally honest confession from a dad. He's believing on the one hand, but on the other hand, he's unsure. He has faith on the one hand, but fear lives within him because he doesn't have any answers. He's got this tension within himself, and he wants to believe Jesus, but he must battle through his unbelief. Mark 9, verse 14 and following. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And so they brought him. And when, they, when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, verse 24, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked and convulsed violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. We start the story, and we, we look at the, all the characters therein, and they all have a common problem. The demon. Now, obviously, the demon is a problem for the boy. No indication in the story how old the boy is, but certainly um, from what he can do, 
we presume he's at least an older child, perhaps a teenager. Some commentators think older than that. For the father, the demon was a huge problem. In my mind, though scripture doesn't say, I only imagine them having one child. Because if he's been like this from childhood, that's an incredible burden. And it's also incredibly embarrassing. Every parent wants their child to be absolutely normal when they're born. But after they're born, (laughs) they want them to be absolutely exceptional. Right? You have your child playing in sports, it's not enough that they play. It's that they play for a good team and that they're, they get the most playing time. I mean, that's, that's very important. If your child is very smart, it's not good that they're smart. It's, it's, you want them to be a straight A. You want them to uh, get 4.0 National Honor Society, summa cum laude, and so forth. And this, this dad, presumably mother too, uh, they're, they're just hand to mouth. We're just going to take care of today. Imagine what that would have been like in social situations, family situations. You know, it's it stumped a lot of people. And they're just left there, you know, every day wondering what and how God's going to work this out. For the disciples, the disciples had a big problem here. I mean, it limited their power. Jesus had given them the authority. We'll look at that in just a minute. But this demon is kind of stubborn. He's not going to leave in just the normal way. So he presents a problem for them too. Mark chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus gave the disciples the authority to cast out demons. One of the things that they were, had the ability to do, even in the early church, the Spirit in some cases gifted this ability to early believers. Mark chapter 6, verse 13, three chapters later, tells us they had been casting out demons. They had all, not just that Jesus gave them the authority to do it, but they had been exercising that authority. And they come to this little boy, and this demon isn't coming out to the point where it's causing a bit of a scene. The deeper problem, sink deeper below just the surface problem of the demon, is the lack of faith. And and I think lack of faith from the Father and lack of faith from the disciples, as we'll look at it. Last week, we talked about the leper. And the leper didn't doubt Jesus' ability. What he doubted was his willingness. And this week, it's the opposite. He didn't doubt Jesus' willingness... Many had been willing. The problem was, he says, if you can. It's like, look, I've tried dealing with this. And anybody I bring him to can't get the job done. Including your own disciples. So Jesus refers to this common struggle several times in the text. Oh, unbelieving generation. How long shall I put up with you? Jesus is just exasperated here from their lack of faith. Oh, unbelieving generation. Who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to the Father. He's talking to the the scribes in the crowd. He's talking to the crowd itself. He's addressing, pull it all the way back, he's addressing Israel. 
this from, from the moment where Jacob wrestled with God. They had been wrestling with God. And their whole story, it had just gone in cycles of belief and unbelief, obedience and disobedience. And even for us, there, there comes every believer, if they're honest, you come to a time of, of unbelief. The questions, are you really there? Are, are, my, are my prayers doing anything but bouncing off the ceiling? Do you care? Do you care at all? I know you're there. I think you're there. And you, you seem to be running the whole universe in just this beautiful, very organized, designed plan. But do you care about me? It's easy to get like lost right in that thought right there. There are about 7 billion people on the planet right now. That's, that's a hard number to imagine. And we believe in a God, or profess to believe in a God, who knows us individually. Learning this, you know, just trying to learn names and, and remember faces of 700 folks. And God, 7 billion people that he knows intimately, so the scripture says. Do you care? Can you, can you do something? Will you do something? Even, pe- even men like John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 11, tells the story. Are, are you the one, or should we expect someone else? This is the cousin of Jesus. This is the same John that when, when he heard Mary's voice, he was doing jumping jacks in the womb. He knew it. He was, he was in the spirit of Elijah, going forth and making the way straight. And even John... Came to a point where he said, okay, I gotta know. Just assure me. Just be there. Just answer me this. Are you the one? Turn to Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. You've already read through this, but you probably know the section of Scripture. But this is the very end of Jesus' story according to Matthew's account. Uh, chapter 28, and I said verse 20, but I need to back up. Uh, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Look at verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. This is after the resurrection, folks. I mean, these are the, the guys who walked and talked and saw the miracles and believed. We talked about all of that last year on Sunday nights. And yet even they, even after all of this, even after seeing the resurrected Jesus, they still, they themselves had this, this inkling of doubt. Is it really him? If you have doubt, you are in good company. All believers have this tension between constant belief and unbelief. Um, this is my, my simplest illustration, but I, I used to think that belief and unbelief was kind of a binary thing. You know, it was just on and off. But the longer I'm a Christian, the more I believe it's just in constant tension between, oops, hit the, <laughs> don't peek. All right. 
they're in constant tension between on the one hand, but on the other hand. On the one hand, but on the other hand. And I think that the older you get, and the more you read the scripture, and the more you're around the community of faith, and this is such a big part of why the church is so important, I think the church helps that We'll just say the right hand, which would, I'll, I'll make it for you guys. This will be your right hand. Okay. Um, the right side be so much stronger. The faith side. And, and, and even, if you, even if that hand pulls and pulls and pulls your whole life, there's still, there's still. You know, my, my grandmother, who I've talked about many times from this pulpit, is a faithful woman and believed wholeheartedly in the scriptures. And her whole life, her faith had just pulled her and pulled her family and pulled and pulled and pulled her grandson. And yet when I was there at her dying day, I saw a little bit of fear. Not because she didn't believe, but because there's, this, there's still this little bit. There's this little bit of fear pulling on this end. It doesn't mean that she's not didn't go on to a reward. I just think that there's this constant tension between the two. And the more that you feed this one, the weaker this one gets. And, and the converse of that is true as well. The more that you feed doubt, the more that you feed unbelief, the more that you stop being with other believers, the stronger this one gets. And here's the thing. This is why I hate writing people off. I got a friend request today from a girl who used to be in the youth group years ago. I haven't seen her in church in a decade plus. And I don't know where she is, but I'm thinking, man, I bet doubt and fear has dragged her. And yet there was something that caused her to, to hit that friend request button. There's something still within her that wants to believe. And this is the tension that believers must constantly walk in. So don't just think it's one or the other. You know, every single believer has had doubt at times. Every single person of faith must walk that tension between constant belief and unbelief. And I'll tell you, even as your preacher, you know, I have it. That, that very night, morning, in the scrubs, pacing the hospital, uh, right there in the surgical garb, I, I was wrestling. I need you to know that so that you know that when you struggle, that that's okay. That's a normal part of the process. And the part that, that this father gets to where he tells Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's the beautiful, most powerful, honest, authentic, genuine sort of dad that, that I can picture in Scripture. Man, that's good. If you're believing and you've been struggling, you need to be able to know that you can go to Jesus with that. And you can go to God with that. And even as I paced that night, not knowing how that story was going to work out. God said, I understand. I still love you. But you've got to trust me that I have you and I have Christy and that I have little baby Grace as well. When we think about faith, we need to remember that faith in and of itself has no power. Okay? What I mean by that is, 
Faith is simply the transmission line between the power source and the thing that needs the power. Aaron Banning is my friend and, and a great guy. And he is an electrician who's just <laughs> so great at his job. And so every now and again, because I hate electricity. It just scares me to death. I don't care if it's just changing light bulbs. I mean, you can't see it. And, you know, you could die touching the wrong thing, okay? And so whenever I have, a, you know, I need a new switch put in or I need something that's beyond changing a light bulb, I call Aaron, and he'll come over and take care of it in about three minutes. But, but he, he understands, as all trained electricians do, we have several at Northside, that... As long as that wire that he's touching with isn't connected, there's nothing to fear. But when it's connected, there's, there's power there. That's faith. Faith is simply the connection. I said last week, I can have a ton of faith in that tree over there. It's not going to do me any good because that doesn't have any faith. But if I have a little bit of faith in a very powerful thing, that's powerful. It's not the faith where the power comes from. It's, the, it's what you have the faith in. Faith simply connects us. Jesus had the power. We know he did. We believe that he did. The issue was they weren't connected. They were disconnected from the source. Grace has in her room these little, um, they were just little cheap dollar store lights, like Christmas lights. And she used those kind of for a nightlight. It was pretty cute. But they went out and they stopped working. So... We're trying to fix it. We just figure it's one bulb. And this is those lights that, you know, one bulb's out and they're all out. And so we are working on every single light to figure out where the disconnect is. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God because he who believes that God is, must, he who comes to God must believe that he earnestly exists. And that he rewards those who seek him. Again, not the faith. It's the God that your faith is in. That's why you have to have faith to please God. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, what is the source? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the source of the power. When we trust him, when we focus on him, the connection is made, the power is restored, and we're able to do what we think we couldn't do. But until you come to that point where you're willing to ignore, put aside, pull in spite of, against unbelief, faith will not, there will be a disconnect for you. So connect. So this is what we finish up on. Do that which builds belief and demolishes doubt. Now, on the pictures there, I use this you know, Jenga game. And on both pictures, even though the, the one on your left, which is the built one, it still has a few pieces missing. Because that's, I think, faith is an ongoing thing. Right? Um, 
it's, it's just a part of the journey. And no matter how built <laughs> your faith is, there's always room for adding and growing. And this is what Peter says. The second side, on the right-hand side, we've got the, the tower coming down. And that's the tower of doubt. And I think no matter how demolished that thing is, there's always a little bit left. So as we're journeying along, we take this attitude that the Father had. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. He's saying, help me build my faith and knock off a few of the blocks of my unbelief. Now, don't you believe that happened that day when Jesus cast out the demon out of his son and he was able to have, just picture it, a normal conversation with his son. He could take him out in public for the first time and not worry. Think of how that affected that father. Think of, of these two pictures. Don't you know that there were several levels added to his little pile of faith and that his doubt was, was toppled just a little bit more? I don't think faith was perfect at that moment, and I don't think doubt was completely eradicated. I just think there was progress in both. The same is true for us. We've got to do that which builds belief. How do we do that? Well, the most common two answers, you know, how you grow as a Christian are what? Read more Bible and pray more. Read more Bible and pray. I'm not discounting that. I'm not, I don't want to seem flippant about those. But that, those aren't the only two. What we're doing tonight, what you've done today, is about worshiping God. But it's also about building up this faith. It's about... Uh, Hearing the old, old story over and over again, it's about being reminded of who he is and who we are and where we're going. So we, we pray, we are in the word of God, we are speaking the word of God, we're testifying about that. We are worshiping together, but we're encouraging one another. We're in community together so that we are helping one another or collectively I mean, we had our small group tonight, and, and collectively, as we're talking about the things we talked about this morning, I love that moment, because in that moment, I get to be not the guy, but I get to be a guy who's doing this whole picture. I'm building, and I'm demolishing, just like they are. And, and we mutually encouraged one another, and we, we got to share and to be together. That's what Christianity is all about, whether you do that small group Sunday night, whether you do that fellowship, Bible class time, community Jesus tells the disciples later, they say, why can't we drive this out? He says, this kind can only come out by what? By what two things? Prayer and fasting, right? And I think we do ourselves a disservice to discount fasting as a thing. And if you can't for health reasons, I understand. But I do believe there's an extra measure of devotion. And Jesus said, when, we, when he left his followers, then we would fast. And so if you do that, wonderful. I think all of those things will help build your belief. How do we demolish doubt? 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we claim to be... Oh, let, me, let me go to verse 7. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son continually purifies us from all sin. But it's not just about being pure from sin. Listen to what he goes on to say. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins 
and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. If you think confession and the only time that happens is response time a couple times a week, that's not it. It's just what he's saying here is, do you have the ability to be authentic with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Can you be honest about the times when you've doubted, when you've wrestled, when you've struggled? Do you speak freely about areas where you have struggled? Maybe you don't struggle anymore, but maybe you've had family troubles or finance troubles or marriage problems or job stress or health struggles. Does the community know about that? Does the kingdom have any idea? Or you just come here to pretend like you got it all together? We've got to be authentic. We've got to ask for help. I think that's true in asking God for help, certainly, but I think sometimes we've got to ask one another. How can they help you unless they know? How can they, how can they bless you by giving to you if they don't know you have a need? So, I, I know we're running a little long, but this is, this is the final application. The best thing we can do is take the Father's plea. I believe, Lord, but help me with my unbelief. And I mean by that the best thing we can do at those, those moments where you wrestle with God. You, you have moments of belief. We all do. We'll finish up by going to an Old Testament story that you know pretty well, especially if you've been in a VBS or a Sunday school class. He says, uh, Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 20. Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 20. This is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Remember, he had said, bow down before the statue. They refused to. Finally comes to this moment where they're, they're not just wrestling with old King Nebuchadnezzar. They are wrestling with God. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of his strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. I'm not sure in that scenario who was it. Was it Shadrach? Was it Meshach? Was it old Abednego who's always sticking his foot in his mouth? Was, who was it that said, who just kept, you know, makes this great speech and he says, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. And the other two guys are like, did you hear what he said? What's this, even if he doesn't talk? Okay, they're wrestling right there. They believe, they trust, but they don't know how it's going to end. And they say, we are going to be delivered from your hand. It's either going to be by death or God's going to intervene some other way, but he is going to deliver us. If he delivers us from the furnace, that'd be awesome. And as he makes this speech, it so infuriates the king that he, he says, heat up the furnace. Just make it roast. I mean... 
man, what a moment where they had to decide who they were. Even if he doesn't, believe anyway. Just because he doesn't answer your prayer in the way that you wanted, in the timing that you had in mind, with the specificity that you wanted, doesn't mean he didn't hear. And doesn't mean that he isn't working. Don't base the totality of your understanding of God about whether or not he did it the way you expected it done. Throughout the whole Bible is a reminder over and over again that God does these things just to make us go, Oh, man, that's not the way I would have done it. But he does that, I think, just to show us who's God. Let us remember the story of the Father. And may we, even in times of doubt, even in times of understanding, trust him enough to believe anyway, in spite of our unbelief. Trusting that... I know that he can and he will deliver us through the trial and the unbelief. Tonight, if you are here and you don't know that father, I invite you to begin a journey of a single step down this aisle to begin an entire lifetime of journeying in faith. It's the best step you'll ever take. If you haven't put on Christ in baptism, please come. Or if we can help you along your journey in any other way, please come as we stand and sing.